Forge family. Last week, when we studied Ephesians together, we saw the text broken into three sections. The first three verses of chapter 2 dealt with the state of the Gentiles before they were exposed to the gospel message. Paul pointed out that they were dead in their trespasses and sins under the control and powerful spiritual influences of the world system of Satan and his minions and of their own flesh, their fallen and darkened nature. They were, in effect, spiritual corpses. The second section, verses 4 to 9, had Paul laying out how the great mercy of God cut away the bondage to sin so that the Gentile believers could receive God's grace, the free gift of God offered up to all, but only received by faith. That faith is both belief and trust. It's not a limp word said in passing to get the pastor or the evangelist to back off. Okay, faith in the risen Christ means that you trust and believe his scripture to be 100% true, pure, perfect, and breathed out by Holy Spirit. That faith tugs on your heart to trust in Jesus when life is difficult. That faith lifts our countenance to glorify God, even as martyrs. Thirdly, Paul wanted the Gentiles to know that they were the very workmanship of God himself, crafting them, making them ready for the the godly good works that he had laid out before them to do in Jesus' name. Even today, we trust in him for his awesome strength to break us out of the miasma of selfishness that swirls around us and sometimes even in us. We, too, are to be godly doers of mighty good works. Let's pray. Holy One, we, too, were brought from darkness to light, from death to resurrection, from utterly selfish ways to humility before you as sons and servants. Here we are today, Lord, presenting ourselves as adopted sons and daughters. Not yet perfect, but on the way there in one sense. Lord, we're those who have been spiritually seated in heavenly places with you, Lord Jesus, from the gates of hell to the courts of heaven. We have been caught up, lifted above the world system, above Satan and his wicked plans, and we're being set free from our darkened flesh through your work in our sanctification, our present tense salvation. Wow! Amazing, Lord. We bow to you in thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, we will finish chapter 2 of Ephesians, beginning in verse 11, continuing over into verse 12. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Paul reminds the Gentile believers in Jesus Christ that at one time they were super alienated from the Jews and that their alien and, and, and with their alienation came that separation from the one true God. Even the name Gentile was spoken of as one with, uh, it was with vile contempt. If a Gentile married a Jew, the Jewish community held a funeral for the Jewish member of that marriage. 
It was even forbidden to assist in the delivery of a Gentile baby because that would allow one more Gentile to live on the earth. Now, Gentiles, that, that's all peoples who are not Jews. Okay, so that, that was speaking of two different races here, Jews and Gentiles, okay, that encompass the earth. They, they were excluded from the citizenship of being God's chosen people. The Gentiles were utter strangers to the laws and ordinances that Yahweh had laid down for his people to follow and live out. They were without hope of God's intervention on their behalf. And although they bowed before a broad spectrum of idols and demonic influences, they were without a relationship with the one true God. The outward separation was a mark on the body of all Jewish males. The circumcision done on the eighth day after birth setting that infant aside to Yahweh. But here, Paul says that such a mark on the male organ done by hands was super close to the done-by-hands carving and molding of idols. That phrase is drawn from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Paul is setting the stage for the Gentiles to know in their hearts and in their spirits that God has done a mighty work to move them from darkness, hopelessness, and unbelief to become sons and daughters of the king. Now, at that time, the Jews were looking forward to the coming of their Messiah. They believed that Yahweh would manifest and would display their anointed one in a manner that would totally dominate all the Gentile populations, socially, commercially, militarily, and spiritually. They had a tie to Messiah, but when he appeared in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, only a tiny fraction of Jews recognized him as the promised one. Those who rejected Jesus clung to the Mosaic law, to circumcision, to the Torah, and to the Mishnah, believing that they were God's people and as such Yahweh would prosper and protect and empower them. Verse 13 says, But now, in Christ... You who formerly were off, far off are being brought near by the blood of Christ. Now remember last week, we looked at verse 4 of chapter 2, which began with, But God, which for the Jews was a reminder that when that phrase appears, it is to restate who God is, what he has promised, and what his plans are as, they, as he moves forward. Here in verse 13, Read the opening text as, but in Christ Jesus, now those of you who are far away, etc. It is the same exercise of God reminding the Gentiles like he would remind the Jews. And it was done in Christ. There's a sharp contrast between the state of the Gentiles previously to the arrival of of the gospel message. And now these brothers and sisters were trusting in Jesus by faith. Once they were greatly distanced from God, but in Christ they had been drawn near. And what power accomplished that? The power in the shed blood of Christ. You remember the, the hymn? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. You know, we, we sing it often, okay? But do we understand it? That blood breaks every chain, every addiction, every evil pattern of behavior, and overcomes every block 
between a believer and the Lord Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the highest surfactant. Now, Paul moves on to result uh, to the result of the drawing the Gentiles of uh, to God himself. In verses 14 to 16, it says, For he himself is our peace. We, you know, we were part of both groups, which was drawn into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. That opening phrase in verse 14 is startling because it occurs twice, actually, in the text of, the, of these three verses. God himself, uniquely, he and no other, he in his own person, he made peace. The word peace in Greek is erene and refers to joining together that which is separated. The bitter hatred between Jew and Gentile was erased as one by one Jew and Gentile came to Christ and experienced the peace of God himself making both groups into one new man. One new race. There are two Greek words to designate new. And Paul uses kainos, a word that means new in quality. In this case, as in never before has there been this one new man. The early church referred to itself as the third race. Okay? There are Jews, there's Gentiles, and then there's us, Christians, followers of Jesus, the way, etc. And Jesus Christ did this by breaking down the dividing wall. Now, the dividing wall, while it was a symbol, it was also an actual wall, four and a half feet tall, called the Tzoreg, between the court of the Gentiles in Herod's temple in Jerusalem and the court of the Israelites and the court of the women, barring entry of any Gentile into the inner courts of the temple, on the walls surrounding that low fence, where at one time 13 metal and stone carved signs, two of which have been found in archaeological digs on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The signs each state, quote, let no one of any other nation come within the fence and barrier around the holy place. Whosoever will be taken doing so will himself be responsible for the fact that his death will ensue. In, in a few words, it means you step over that fence, you step around that fence into the holy place, you're dead. Paul knew that wall very well, thank you, for he tarried in the temple in Jerusalem to fulfill his vow after he had come down the coast from Ephesus, having talked to the elders of the Ephesian church at the, at the port of Miletus. And in the temple, he was seen and recognized by Asian Jews who hated him. For he was preaching that Messiah had come and had been rejected by the Jew. But the Gentiles were surging into the arms of Jesus. 
Further, in Acts 21, Paul was falsely accused of bringing a Gentile from Ephesus named Trophimus beyond the wall, beyond the Tzoreg, into the temple courts. A savage riot ensued, and Paul was ultimately rescued by the Roman garrison. Okay, that started his process toward making an appeal to Caesar and house arrest and the whole deal in Rome. This, this dividing wall in the temple was a symbol of bloody hatred and separation between the Jew and the Gentile that stretched back to the tabernacle in the wilderness some 1,300 years. That middle wall was the enmity. Now, Rita Snowden tells a story of the First World War. In France, some soldiers with their sergeant brought the body of a dead comrade to a French cemetery to have him buried. The priest told them gently that he was bound to ask if their comrade had been baptized adherent to the Roman Catholic Church. And the soldiers responded, they did not know. The priest said, well, he was very sorry, but in that case, he could not permit burial in his churchyard. So the soldiers took their comrade away sadly and buried him just outside the fence. The next day, they came back to see that the grave was all right and to their astonishment, could not find it. Search as they might, they could find no trace of the freshly dug soil. As if they, you know, as they were about to leave, the priest came up to them and he spoke to their bewilderment, he said he told them that his heart had been troubled because of his refusal to allow their dead comrade to be buried in the churchyard. So early in the morning, he had risen from his bed and with his own hands had moved the fence to include the body of the soldier who died in France. William Barclay said, that is what love can do. The rules and regulations put up the fence but love moves it. Jesus removed the fences between man and man because he abolished all religion founded on rules and regulations and brought to men a religion whose foundation is love. Bishop John Reed, who served the church in Australia, tells a story about driving a school bus that carried whites and aborigines Tired of all the squabbling, one day far out in the bush, he pulled over to the side of the road and said to the white boys, What color are you? And they responded, White! He told them, No, you are green. Anyone who rides on my bus is green. Now what color are you? And the white boys replied, uh, Green. And he went to the aborigines and said, What color are you? Black. No! You are green. Anyone who rides on my bus is green. All the Aborigines answered that they were green. The situation seemed resolved until several miles down the road, he heard a boy in the back of the bus announce, All right, light green on this side, dark green on that side. The bishop had the right desire. He wanted a new race, the Greens, but he could not pull it off. By his death, Jesus abolished the impossible-to-keep ceremonial code known as the law. Then he created a new humanity, a new race, which he created himself. 
as one new man, making peace. We are his masterwork, one new race created in Christ Jesus. This must not be watered down, family. This is the answer to alienation, to racism, to prejudice, to hatred, and to estrangement. Paul concludes verse 16 with the statement that after peace is established, Jesus Christ reconciled both believing Jew and believing Gentile in one body. The word reconcile is a sweet, powerful expression. The Greek word is katalasso, which means to bring together those that are at variance. Those who hate each other, those who go to war against each other, those who curse each other. But by the power of the cross, Jew and Gentile received grace from God to become one new race expressed by the church, the body of Christ. He did that by putting to death the enmity between each man and each woman, and even their hatred directed toward God himself by the blood of the cross. And then Paul makes a direct quote from Isaiah 57, quote, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Now Paul draws on the rising revelation of God's plan displayed through his prophet 700 years before Christ was born. Paul follows up with the same near and far mankind, Jew and Gentile, having been preached to with the good news of the risen Christ, that preaching that brought peace. And then Paul continues, quote, For through him <clears throat> we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, and whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. <clears throat> Where once Gentiles were aliens and strangers, shut out of the commonwealth of God's revelations to the Jews, now, they were fellow citizens with the saints, the born-again ones, making them members in God's household. That household, that gathering of saints into one body, has been built on teaching. Listed here are apostles and prophets of God who proclaimed Christ is risen, and they built up the brothers and sisters in their faith to, uh, to understand more of the knowledge of Christ and the word. And that was the foundation of the building, housing the dwelling place for God. The cornerstone, Christ Jesus, falls into the role of setting the plane for all other foundation stones and the plane of the walls. This cornerstone was the most significant part of any foundation, bearing much of the weight of the building and tied the walls firmly together. In the early 1990s, an archaeologist discovered five enormous stones that were part of the foundation of Herod's temple in Jerusalem. The largest stone that he found measured 55 feet long 
11 feet high, 14 feet wide, and is estimated to weigh 570 tons. And that was not the cornerstone. In Isaiah 28, the prophet delivered the word of the Lord about the coming cornerstone. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. God's plan was to see the body of Christ built on teaching and revelation, solidly set on Christ alone, rise up to be a holy dwelling place on earth where he would dwell. Once exclusively he dwelt in the tabernacle and Solomon's temple. Now God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit long to dwell amongst the saints on earth as well as in the heavenlies. The building has not yet been finished. As more and more of the lost come to Christ and are made into living stones, the building grows. God desires that it be a living and dynamic spiritual temple. That awesome building of a permanent dwelling place of God is being accomplished by the Spirit. All right, Ford family. We too were reconciled to God, brought back face to face with him. We too were made living stones, adding to the building of the temple to house God's presence, which is the body of Christ. We have experienced the work of Holy Spirit in our lives as he separates us from the world, Satan, and our own bent flesh. We've seen and felt the building of the foundation of the ecclesia, the church, in our own spirit, soul, and body, as apostles and prophets have taught the word, and we have been built up in the knowledge of Christ Jesus and the word of God. We acknowledge as true truth that we're set on the cornerstone. Christ himself that squares the planes of the spiritual building, that corrects the planes of that building, that houses the body of Christ and welcomes the very presence of God himself. We are made into the third race, whose citizenship is in heaven. Let's pray. Reconciling God, you brought us face to face with you. Our gratitude is poured out in our obedience to you. Our love for you is poured out in our praise to you. Our longing to be in your presence is poured out in our search for and listening to Holy Spirit. Lead on, O God Jehovah, because we're pilgrims in this weary land. And yet you fill us with righteousness, peace, and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge family. See you soon. God bless you.